Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that joining us in the studio, Mike Dada, MKM Partners Chief Economist and Macro Strategist. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning. Thanks for having Your me. Your microphone is working. I'm happy about that. <laughs> yes, it is. You've got some leading indicators you want to talk to us about. So run us through them one by one on why maybe the jury's still out on this economy. Absolutely. So a lot of happy talk on trade, as was mentioned. Um, and the most recent raft of macro data looking pretty good, GDP and, and, and jobs. Uh, so there's a sense that, you know, we've soft landed. OK, the recession risk has receded now. But keep in mind, we went through a multi-month yield curve inversion period in the U.S. with 12-month forward recession probabilities peaking in August. So we really need to get through next summer, in my opinion, without evidence of the business cycle, um, you know, faltering. And so what I would watch, you know, if I just gave you one indicator from here is I'd watch the evolution of first time jobless claims like a hawk, not a long leading indicator, but a you know, pretty powerful shorter term leading indicator. They'll tend to spike in a very specific fashion just a few months before a downturn. That has not happened yet, but let's see how claims perform as we go through the first half of next year and ideally through next summer. So, Mike, we did have some good jobs numbers uh, last week, offsetting uh, what continues to be a you know a weakening manufacturing sector, business right. investment sector. How do we kind of weigh those two things? We know the consumer is seventy percent of the economy, but can we fully discount what's happening in the manufacturing sector? I don't think so, because you know manufacturing is cyclical, so is business investment, and so sometimes if you're headed into a downturn, it's really you know those sectors, even though they don't represent you know a huge swath of the economy, that tend to falter first. So we. We shouldn't just you know write it off as irrelevant, but for the time being, uh, as you mentioned, the strength of the consumer has really carried the day. We have two consecutive down quarters of business fixed investment, so essentially you have a capital spending recession. It looks like you know we're sort of on the front edge of a bit of a profits recession. You know markets are jubilant, but you know we're basically beating dramatically lowered expectations for earnings. Uh, yet the consumer has been strong, so that's held growth up. Does that that continue through the first half of next year, or does the foundation under the consumer economy, which is essentially the labor market and confidence, start to crack? That's what we need to be worried about. Mike, what do you make of the analysis at the moment that these small shifts at a single data point generate outsized perception shifts from weak to weak? The right. global economy doesn't move that fast, but the perception of what the global economy is doing is moving radically from week to week over the last number of months. Why? Yeah, I think there's a bit of a tendency to sort of overanalyze every data point. Maybe that's, you know, the fault of, of us that are participating in the financial press uh, where we have to try to dissect every, you know, every piece of data and, and maybe we make more out of it than is really there. But I also think we've had a situation where if you go back a few month, months, we really kind of had the sum of all fears coming together. There was recession fears at, at, you know, building, but you also had fears of a hard Brexit, fears of the trade war spinning out of control. You know, we had the Hong Kong protests going full force. And so a lot of that has receded now, at least for the time being. And so, you know, maybe it 
maybe it, it seems like it's one piece of data, but it's really these three or four things that we're weighing on the market that at least for now um, seem to have, have receded. We caught up with Vice Chairman Clarida on Friday. He sounded really quite optimistic yes. about the U.S. economy. That was my big takeaway from the interview, just sitting there listening to him. Monetary policy is in a good place. The right. U.S. economy is in a good place. Do you think it's in a good place? Well, I think if you look at the coincident indicators, GDP, jobs, you know, it looks like a soft landing. And I think that's, you know, what he was referencing. And that that's what the Fed's goal was. I mean, they tightened policy not to cause a recession, but to slow growth to trend. Gro- growth is essentially slowed to trend. Uh, and so, so far, so good. Uh, the real question is, is whether that continues uh, as we move into the first half of next year. I think that the Fed narrative here is based basically a 1995 or a 1998 scenario uh, where rates were dropped 75 basis points and the business cycle continued. After a slowdown, very sharp slowdown in 95, 98, it was really moving through a period of sharp financial contagion in credit and currency markets. Uh, in this time, you know, you have slowing growth, but at this point, still positive growth. So, Mike, do you think the Fed is, in fact, um, we got that 25 basis point cut do you think they're on the sidelines now to maybe mid next year? Well, if you look at the 12-month forward Fed funds futures market, basically has another one more cut, but you know, out there next year. And the Fed is essentially following the market. Some that makes some people is that, angry, is that but good? Is that, yeah. I was going to say, do you, is that good or bad? The well, Fed following the market. Yeah, I don't think they really have a, a choice, right? I mean, inflation expectations have come way down from where we were last year, and growth has slowed. So, if as some other guests, uh, not current company, have come on and said this is an outrage, the Fed should be going the other way and raising rates. I mean, that is a surefire way to blow up the business cycle. And if that happens then rates are going to zero or maybe even below zero. So, you know, the Fed really doesn't have a, have a choice because, you know, markets are, are looking at the business cycle and, and so they will lead the Fed. So they suggest there's at least one more cut out there. Uh, but if growth deteriorates next year, there'll be more than one reduction. Mike, let's finish up with some market calls, shall we? If you la- asked a global investor what had outperformed this year, the DAX or the S&P 500, I'm not sure many people would actually say the DAX, even though through 2019 it has done. I would not have said the by DAX. By a couple yeah. of percentage points. The yes. DAX is up 24% right. in 2019. This is the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany. The S&P 500 up 22%. Have we seen the outperformance in Europe already? Or is there more to go here? Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting question that we're actually struggling with. Um, you know, uh, our our technical strategist J.C. O'Hara and myself are ta- are debating this now whether you know this this seeming outperformance in some of the European equity markets can continue. You know, one argument would be there's already been a slowdown. That's that's been reflected, and simply a stabilization would be enough for an outperformance to carry the day. Um, I'm not super strongly convicted here. Um, you know, one thing that bothers me a bit is even with this package of monetary support that Draghi announced on his way out, very, very little movement in forward-looking inflation expectations. And so it seems like the ECB does not have the credibility uh, or the confidence of the markets to stick to it. Uh, and, and these low, low inflation expectations are, are quite disturbing. So more of a question mark for me on that score. My data, great to catch up with you. I'm Ken Partners, Chief Economist and Macro Strategist. 
we bring in Seema Shah, Principal Global Advisors, Chief Strategist. She joins us on the phone. Seema, your thoughts, please, on why this movie doesn't end the way it has done so many times over the last 18 months. Yeah, uh... You know, this trade deal stuff is, I think the market's getting a little bit optimistic, but then at the same time, you know, the cards, the stars do seem to be aligning that we will see some kind of um, concessions coming through. And it feels that the Trump administration is actually getting relatively desperate compared to how they sounded in the past. Now, I think for the for the market in general, though, the biggest thing that they're going to be watching out for is those December the 15th tariffs. Do they go ahead or not? If they don't, then it's a great, great news for the consumer. And ultimately, for the overall economy, for the U.S. economy, that is all that matters at the moment. So I think if we do get any good news on that side, you should see um, a relatively large market rally just off the back of that. I talked to Larry Kudlow on Friday, the National Economic Council Director, Seema. He did say that those tariffs for December were still on the table. You do get the impression, though, that if we if we sign a phase one trade deal, that goes away. Seema, what Paul and I were talking about, though, is that when you get to the thornier issues that the Chinese just won't budge on, this typically blows up again. Going into 2020, is it different this time around? Yeah, I think it is slightly different. I mean, I, I agree that I think the, the longer-term structural issues are very unlikely to be resolved. And we're not going to see a full trade deal that maybe some people are expecting. But the Trump administration is now going into election year. The U.S. economy is weak. Uh, Some people still expect recession. So they need some kind of deal going into this. And given that we've had so much focus on the consumer, I think that is all that matters at this moment. But beyond that, the technology side, I think, is very unlikely to resolve, not only in 2020, but even looking forward, if you're looking, you know, beyond the next kind of three or four years, that is going to be an agenda which continues with whoever the next government is, or indeed, if it's a Trump administration continuing. So, Simi, you you mentioned the consumer here. We had uh, some pretty good uh, jobs numbers uh, last week. Give us your sense of how much of this economy is really dependent upon the consumer? We know the consumer is 70% of the U.S. economy, but with the manufacturing sector week, business investment weeks, it seems like there's more pressure than ever on the consumer. What's your read of the consumer? No, I, I would absolutely agree. You know, it is all about the consumer at the moment. Um, at this stage, I think they've held up relatively well. I think we should expect to see some continued weakness in Q4, and mainly because of the tariffs really starting to have almost taking their toll. But looking beyond that, you know, the jobless claims numbers, I think they're really positive and they're telling us that the consumer may be able to withstand a lot of this. Now, with the Fed also keeping rates so low, everything is working in order to keep the consumer going. But I don't think they're going to stay as strong as they have. I think there's some weakness, but I don't think it's going to fall over the edge where you have the consumer then bringing the US into recession. Um, So on that basis, I think the market outlook is, is relatively positive. Is this a good entry point for the rest of the world? ex-US. We talked earlier on the program about how actually Europe has started to outperform. The DAX is up 24% through 2019 already, Seema. Why is this a moment, if you do indeed think it is, to actually start to reallocate some capital away from the United States to the rest of the world? Uh, there, there's a whole host of reasons at this stage. You know, if you look at Europe, for example, as you said, valuations are relatively more attractive than almost anywhere else in the world. Um, if you do expect the manufacturing side to at least be troughing, uh, you've taken off all of the worries about Brexit. A lot of the worries about Italy are kind of in the background at the moment. So this is a decent time. And then you also have the ECB, which is very, very accommodative, and it doesn't look like it's going to be reversed. Plus, you potentially have fiscal stimulus on the agenda. So the outlook for Europe is improving. And on emerging markets, if we now think that the dollar is at its peak and it's going to be at least on a slight weakening trend from here, this is a time that emerging markets can start to look really attractive. 
you have to pick your country wisely still, as it will be the case uh, for as long as the global economy is even slightly weak. Um, but if you're an investor and you're allocating around, you have to be cautious. But there are still many opportunities outside of the U.S. that investors should start considering. So, Simi, we're this is, I guess, the last big week of earnings releases. What is your takeaway so far this season? It's, it's been better than we expected. I think that's been the case um, almost all around. We had been, um, you know, if you look at the economic data, for example, just the PMI New Orders Index, that was suggesting that we'd be looking at an earnings recession right now. Um, that hasn't been the case. And I think that the market has really, um, it's helped out the companies that have beaten expectations. They have, the market response has been very positive. And yet the ones that have, have disappointed have been totally beaten up. So there's still a lot of caution out there. I don't think this is the end. I think Q4, you could see further weakness in earnings. But I think Q1 for 2020 is going to be a much, much better quarter. This is such a polarised debate right now. I caught up with Bob Michael of JP Morgan Asset Management to end last week, and he was really blunt with me. And he said the following, the Fed is behind the curve. They overestimate the probability of compromise on the trade front. They over underestimate the spillover impact from manufacturing to services and employment. The next leg of the bond bull market has commenced. Seema, what's the pushback to that? I mean, it's, I don't know if there's a pushback, but I think maybe they're a little bit early to the game on this one. You know, when we look at the bond market, if you just look at the yield curve inversion, yes, it is signaling recession ahead, um, but I don't think it's recession, signaling recession for, in 2020. But there are clearly, there are problems building up. So I think that 2020 is a decent year. But you go into 2021, and there are the bubbles of this with the corporate debt side, which now people are starting to take more notice of. So, yeah, perhaps the Fed is doing everything that it can. I think I don't necessarily believe that they're behind the curve. I think they've struggled with their communication. And I think they've struggled because of the difficulty reading the trade situation. I don't necessarily think they're behind the curve. But what I think from here is that when we get into 2020, if by the end of 2020, you have a weakness in the economy coming through and you have a little monetary stimulus left and you have little power on the fiscal stimulus side, then I think things start to go bad. But I do believe that 2020 is a good year. 2021 might be a completely different story, though. So, Seema, are we defensive right here? Uh, some of those defensive sectors that we hear about a lot, utilities, REITs, uh, consumer staples, they're not cheap. No, they're absolutely not cheap. And the, the thing that we've been saying is that like, you need to maintain your defensive exposure because, look, although there is, we don't expect the recession to come through next year, we think there's a slowdown in play. At the same time, because we believe that you're coming to the trough in the global economic slowdown, uh, this is a time to start thinking about increasing slightly your exposure to cyclicals. The ones that we like, um, technology and financials. We think there's going to be a steepening yield curve as you go into next year, and that should play with financials. And typically, when you do see an economic upturn, um, even if it's very modest, people usually tend to rush for technology. But I think you do need to be cautious. We would not be necessarily talking very well about consumer discretionary at this stage um, because of, you know, we, we see that some weakness coming through for the consumer in Q4. But this is the time to start thinking about rotating a little bit into cyclical. Seema, thank you. Always great to catch up with you. Seema Shah there, Principal Global Investors, Advisors rather, Chief Strategist. Donald's down by just 1.67%. Steve Easterbrook, the CEO, no longer. On the phone, I'm pleased to say Sarah Senator, Sanford Bernstein, Senior Research Analyst. Good morning to you, Sarah. What's the message for clients after this firing? Good morning. Um, you know, the message is that from what we can tell, his 
you know, Easterbrook's successor, Chris Kaczynski, was, you know, intimately uh, a part of the strategic uh, decisions and setting the strategy for the next few few years. Uh, he started as the um, head of global strategy and business development. So he basically co-authored the company's Vision 2020 plan. You know, he's about as, um, you know, as involved as a person could be in having set the strategy and now having seen it through for the last couple of years as president of the U.S. business. So um, interesting, Sarah, give us a sense of what's going on at McDonald's here. I see the stock up only about 9% this year. Give us a sense of how they're positioned in the marketplace right now, strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, they are, um, you know, a leading QSR. I think their uh, business has been quite solid. Uh, and if you look at the same store sales numbers, um, which is usually the first uh, metric that investors look at. So, you know, they've had a very good year to date performance, both within the U.S., where it's been same store sales growth of around 5%, and also uh, e even better, arguably, internationally, where the same store sales growth has been even higher. So, um, the strategies that they have been affecting over the last couple of years are working um, in driving, you know, increased sales in their stores. Uh, the challenge this year has been there's been a lot of reinvestment, but I think in general, um, you know, what we have seen is when McDonald's reinvests or when any large company reinvests ahead of the industry, it tends to pay dividends over time. And I think that's why we are seeing uh, sustained higher pace of same-store sales growth out of the company. Do you think that in general for a long-term outlook uh, of a company like McDonald's that it's better to take swift action and boot a popular, successful chief executive officer who has really uh, led the business forward versus taking a step back and trying to figure out uh, perhaps another path? Well, you know, I think um, this is the, the you know this is the policy McDonald's has, and and uh, nobody is you know above reproach. I think, um, so th you know they did what they have to do, and I think you know to your point, having certainty is always better. Market is down, but it's not down a lot. I assume that many people think that we have a continuity candidate, candidate in the hot seat, and this continues. Raymond James pointing out this morning that McDonald's has one of the deepest and longest tenured management teams. Sarah, is that what you see too? And how important is that going to be in the coming years? Well, um, you know, I think it's um, you know, if, if you if you look at at their uh, management team, you look at the biographies that are online. You know, it's hard it's hard to argue that they don't have a very good management team. Um, you know, the new head of the U.S. has been there since at McDonald's since 2002, so a very long tenured. Uh, he was previously running the international operated markets, so these are the markets outside the U.S. where they have a lot of company operated stores. Um, you know, and I think uh, any of the other uh, members of the team, if you look at them, with a few exceptions, have been at McDonald's for quite a long time, you know, 25 years in the case of the head of the international development license market. So uh, I always think having a deep bench is critical, you know, especially when you have uh, some transition at the very top. You want to make sure that the kind of day-to-day -day operations um, don't get overlooked in that process. And I think having very tenured people who have been in their roles or similar, similar roles for a long time is important. Let's get to the day-to-day -day ops. There seems to be a little bit of tension at the moment between the headquarters, corporate policy coming down from the C-suite and the franchisees. How big is that tension at the moment, Sarah, and how difficult will it be for Kemsinski to resolve it? Well, I think they've actually, they have resolved uh, a lot of it, or at least... Um uh, 
the, um, you know, from what we can observe, that's been the case. So there's no question when they first rolled out some of these initiatives in the U.S., they were asking franchisees to do a lot, you know, remodel their stores. They had changes in the uh, in the field leadership or the way they organized it. They were changing how they were approaching media buying. You know, there was a lot to swallow, pardon the pun, at the same, at all at once. And so I think what we have observed is that, you know, uh, Chris Kinsinski went on a listening tour last year, really talked to the operators, made some concessions. Um, in the end, not a lot has changed because I think the operators saw that the, the strategy was the right one. So if you look at the pace of the deployment of Experience of the Future, it's really very similar to the initial timeline they rolled out, even though they've given uh, franchisees a couple more years to get this done and still receive some subsidies from McDonald's. Um, so I would say, you know, if you look at operating measures, you know, customer satisfactions at all-time highs, if you look at financial metrics, uh, franchisee cash flows are, um, you know, better than they were last year and approaching the all-time highs of, of 2017. Uh, so I think they're in a pretty good place. Sarah, great to catch up with you. Appreciate your time this morning. I'm sure it's exceptionally busy at the moment for you. Sarah Senator there, Sanford Bernstein, Senior Research Analyst on McDonald's. There were so many big interviews on Bloomberg Television, in particular Friday, Larry Kudlow, Rich Clarida, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who spoke with our own David Weston, host of uh, Bloomberg Balance of Power. And and really, it was a newsmaking uh, interview that drove the narrative over the weekend. We had impeachment discussions as well as uh, Nancy Pelosi's take on the 2020 election. Take, take a listen to a snippet of what she had to say. I'm not a big fan of Medicare for all. I mean, I, I welcome the debate. I think that we should have health care for all. I think that the Affordable Care benefit is better than the Medicare benefit. Uh, but we have invited uh, advocates for it to testify in Congress, in the Ways and Means Committee, in the Budget Committee, in the Rules Committee, being respectful of the point of view. But it is um, uh, expensive. Uh, who pays is very important. What are the benefits that come in there? So I would, I would think that hopefully as we emerge into the election year, the mantra will be more health care for all Americans because there is a comfort level that some people have with their current private insurance that they have. And if that is to be phased out, let's talk about it. But let's not just have one bill that would do that. That was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi speaking on Friday with her own David Weston, who joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. David, uh, there seems a sort of increasing frustration around health care with Democrats. On one hand, it's an incredibly important issue for them to address. On the other, there is very little agreement among the candidates of exactly how to go about fixing the problem that a lot of people agree upon. Can you give us a sense of why this is the issue that's front and center for the Democrats? Well, first and foremost, it is so so terribly important to the American people. Every single poll tells you health care is right up at the top. So it's a very important issue. You have to remember in the midterm elections uh, back in 2018, uh, Nancy Pelosi got a majority of Democrats in the House by saying, watch out, Donald Trump's going to take away your health care. People were scared of Donald Trump. The challenge she's got now is you just heard at the end of that clip her saying, wait a second, if we're taking away health insurance for people, then people may be scared of the Democrats. They may take an advantage and turn it into a disadvantage. I think that's part of what she's concerned about. So, David, 
David, what does Speaker Pelosi say as relates to the upcoming election? There's such a crowded uh, Democratic field. How does she view this thing is going to play out? Well, she's very careful in not picking winners and losers, yep. although in that interview, she clearly, clearly conveyed a sense that we better not go too far left. Uh, I asked her specifically, are you going to win the Electoral College with Medicare for All? And she said, that's not going to help across the country. Maybe my home, my home district of San Francisco, but not otherwise. Right. But you have to remember, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. When you say the 2020 election, she doesn't just think the president. She thinks about what happens sure. to the Democrats in the House. So for that matter, is there a chance of taking the Senate? And I think part of what she's concerned about is if you go too far progressive or left, uh, you may not only lose the presidency, you might lose the House. I'm struggling to understand how potent healthcare as the primary issue in a debate is. I mean, yes, people want their health care, but I feel like they're preaching to the choir, aren't they, when it comes to Democrats trying to recruit Democrats, not necessarily President Trump's supporters. Yeah, sure. I mean, it wor worked for them, as I said, in 2018. You also have to think, what else do they have? One of the things we talked about was the economy's not doing that badly. We're still growing. Maybe it's 2%, but we're still growing. Unemployment is close to a 50-year low. How do you go to the Trump voter from 2016 and say, you should switch your vote now because of the economy? That's a pretty hard argument to make. Now, she tries to make it by saying it's got to be distributed differently, uh, but it's a little bit hard to say the economy really is uh, in a ditch. So what did... Speaker Pelosi have to say on impeachment is such a moving target here, but it looks like they maybe want to get something done by Christmas. Yeah, she, she really said, number one, I'm not for impeachment. Uh, I didn't want this to go forward. And we all knew that, but she said it. I didn't want it to go forward. But when she saw the transcript of that uh, or the modified transcript of the conversation between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine, she said we had no choice at that point. It was absolutely clear. And this is not about politics, she would say. And she did say, this is not about politics, whatever the consequences. I have an oath to defend the Constitution. What the president was doing there violates the Constitution. It's an abuse of power. How optimistic does she seem about the 2020 election for the Democrats? Well, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a very good question, Lisa. Uh, she doesn't convey it that way. Of course she's optimistic. She says that they will do well. Okay, but how, how does she really feel? <laughs> I, I, I think she feels, uh, now I'm speaking for her. This is not what she said, okay? So this is presumptuous on my part. Uh, I think as, as she says, a card-carrying liberal from San Francisco who normally would want to go with the left, she sees that as a dangerous route, I think. It's what I infer from what she's saying, that they have to be very careful about that uh, if they are going to maintain or increase their position in 2020. That, in fact, a lot of people are more in the center. And listen, we know that. Look at the key district. It is Wisconsin. It is Michigan. It is Pennsylvania. It's not San Francisco. It's not the Upper East Side of New York that she's got to be fighting for. It's such an interesting time to report, be reporting on politics right now. It's very hard for me to get a sense of what people talk about behind the headlines and how much support there is of some of the current policies and how uh, isolated President Trump is, or how, frankly, how much support he has uh, by the, his own Republican Party. I, I'm just struggling well, to three, understand. He has three campaign events this week. Yes. He'll be going through the South for three you know, well, big But, but uh, interestingly, part of that is because the state of Mississippi now might actually conceivably elect the Democrat as governor. There's a lieutenant governor running there that they are concerned about. You never thought that. So he's going to northern Mississippi, right. uh, which is, says something about how concerned he is about it. On the other hand, I think we underestimate how good a retail person-on-person -person politician he is, Donald did, Trump. Did Speaker Pelosi have any sense as to the timing of this impeachment? Because it's 
she's really in charge. She says it's going to take as long as it takes. Take so. uh, and, and actually, I asked her, can you limit it to Ukraine? She said that's what prompted it. Can you limit it to that because it'll make it shorter? She said it's up to the committees. I can't control that. They might go into all of those obstruction of justice attempts that Mr. Mueller found. They might go to that, which means we're then into the primary season next year. David Weston, thank you so much for being with us and for the terrific interview. It really uh, uh, was definitely a must-watch. I recommend it. David Weston, host of Bloomberg Balance of Power, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.